Thank you, Alicia. Good, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and so welcome to those of you who's your first time. We're, we're glad that you're here. Also, welcome to those who are on the live stream. Uh, we have uh, been working through Romans, and uh, as you might have seen, the Disciple Maker track on Romans uh, happens on Sundays at 4 o'clock. It happens in this building in person, but it also happens uh, online simultaneously. So if, if it's something that you want to participate in, today starts the new mini-mester. And we'll be going through the entire book of Romans uh, in that track. So in the preaching, we'll get through uh, chapter 8. So if you want to go through the whole book, uh, come join us. So we've been saying that the uh, book of Romans is about the gospel. Th- this seems obvious. Um, even from the very beginning of the book, where the uh, first verse of the first chapter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Then a few verses later, in what might be called his thesis statement, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then Paul takes the next four chapters really to thoroughly explain the gospel, both the predicament that human beings are in, uh, the, the bad news, if you will, that human beings uh, are sinners, that because of that they are under just punishment, also known as wrath. Uh, he kind of sums this up in Romans 3:19 and 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He lets us know that no matter who the human being is, whether they're a Jew that possesses the law or a, a non-Jew, a, a Greek that does not have possession of the law, They stand in God's courtroom with their mouths silent. They have no defense uh, for their sin, and they are under just punishment. This sets up the good news that there's a remedy for this human predicament, that wrath-deserving sinners can actually be saved from their punishment, but not only that, can be declared innocent. We talked about this with the word pardon, that It just doesn't remove punishment, but actually gives them a clean record. He sums this up in Romans 3, 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell us that at the cross, uh, God is able to be both a righteous judge and a gracious justifier. We can be made righteous by grace, and we can receive that through faith. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's really good news. And so as we consider this really good news, it's kind of automatic to then consider how should I respond to this really good news. And obviously Paul wants us to respond with faith. I mean, the word faith is in Romans 1 through 4 so many times. Uh, He he wants us to believe. He wants us to trust in. He wants us to rely upon this good news. 
But there's other responses that are appropriate as well. And, and you could think of these in three different categories. That of thinking, feeling, and doing. These are big, broad categories of the responses that are, uh, are appropriate to the gospel. How we think, how we feel, and what we do. I think most of you would say, okay, I, I get the, we should think rightly, right? And I mean, you can't even respond to the gospel if you don't think rightly about the gospel. Um, and this continues after you're a Christian. You need to think rightly about the gospel. It's one of the means that God uses to, to transform you. We know this from places like Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's letting us know the renewal of the mind, the thinking rightly about the gospel, not just to become a Christian, but continuing to grow as a Christian is a means that God uses to transform us. And I think most of us would also know that we should do things rightly in response to the gospel. Uh, Paul actually is being falsely accused that he doesn't care about what you do. And even from the very beginning in his intro, he, he lets us know, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the, quote, obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He wants us to know that, that doing things is an appropriate response to the good news, the grace of the gospel. But I wonder if, if you know that you're also supposed to feel certain things in response to the gospel. Actually, Paul goes into this feeling category really before he goes very far into the doing category. Uh, th this is troubling to some of us, right? Are you saying I'm supposed to feel certain emotions as an appropriate response? Um, yes, and what we probably should call these, because emotions are, are, are thought of in a certain way in our culture, we should call them affections. God is asking us to feel certain affections as an appropriate response to Him. We could... We could contrast these by saying emotions are, yes, feelings, but emotions are mostly based on circumstances, something on the outside of us that's acting on us, and they cause us to feel emotion. Yesterday, the sun was shining, and we felt good about life, and today, the sun's not shining, and we're not feeling as good about life. They're very inconsistent. They're very fleeting. But affections are also feelings, um, but they originate from internally, something that's going on uh, in, inside the Christian. And, and they're so powerful and so consistent, or they can be consistent, such that they actually affect the way that we interact with our external circumstances. And so this is, this is the kind of response that the Scripture is calling us to, to, to respond with is, this kind of an affection. But what, what kind of affections is God asking us to respond with? And there are multiple affections. But one that seems very essential and is in this passage at least three times is the affection of joy. The affection of joy. In fact, we're commanded in this passage to respond with the affection of joy to the gospel. 
And so the three general points in this sermon are going to be that the justified have joy in the gospel, that the justified have joy in suffering, and that the justified have joy in God. So let's look at the first one. The justified have joy in the gospel. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Uh, he, He uses this What's translated, therefore, he's definitely wanting us to think back of Romans 1 through 4 and his word to kind of summarize the main point of what he's just talked about, Romans 1 through 4, is that of justification. We are justified. And we've talked about that, how that's a legal term. It's, it's usually used in, in, in a court of law where a judge compares your behavior to the law and decides whether or not your behavior has broken the law. And when it hasn't broken the law, he declares you justified. But we've learned that there's a justification, a declaring of righteousness, a declaring of innocence that is apart from law-keeping. And this is by grace and received through faith. We are justified. And this isn't just a a change of legal status whereby now we kind of have this distant relationship with our former judge where we kind of give him thumbs up every once in a while. We are actually at peace with the one who was our former judge. We're not on probation. He's not watching us to to see how we're going to behave over the next three years, and then if you do really, really well, he'll bring bring you a little bit closer, and then we'll watch you for another three years, and then maybe bring you... No, it's absolutely, at the same time that you are justified, you have peace with God. Another word which Paul uses is you're reconciled with God. Um. This is hard, harder for humans to do. <laughs> when, when, when forgiveness has been given and then enter right into a peaceful, reconciled relationship. It usually takes us some time. Even if we've had the conversation and given and received forgiveness and we say, is there anything else we need to talk about? No, there's nothing else we need to talk about. But still, there's just this residual difficulty to reconcile, to be at peace with one another. Those of you that are married, you know what I'm talking about. You've talked it out. You've said what you need to say. But depending on how deep the wounds were, it may take half a day or two days or three days. You're able to have peace in the relationship. Again, God's not like that. There's no probation. It's immediate. When we are justified, we have peace with God. Let that stir the affection of joy for God. How Paul specifically points to our justification or or what we should be rejoicing in. He says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope. Hope, looking forward to something with absolute certainty. That's, That's biblical hope. It's not like we use the word hope in our culture. In our culture, we're like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I mean, good luck. It that's, that, that's a hope, I mean, but it's not biblical hope. A hope is looking forward to something with absolute certainty that the promise-making God is going to keep His promises. 
God's glory. Right? This hope that we have that is our ultimate hope is also God's glory. What, what is this hope? What is this glory? The gospel. The gospel. What God has done for us in Christ at the cross is our ultimate hope and God's ultimate glory. Now, what's glory? Um, things that, 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 that reveal who God is. Right? Things that, like if we're looking at the sun and, and the rays that are emanating from the sun or the sun's glory, and they tell us about where those, what, what those rays are coming from. Right? And so things that God has done are His glory. Uh, much like a, the picture that an artist might draw or paint. It's their glory. You might praise the picture, but then you're going to praise the artist. Right? So this picture that... That, that, this, that, can you see that? This is some of my art. That's a road runner, in case you don't know what that is. And the first day that uh, we, were, we were moving Kayla in on her, in her freshman year, I went over to her roommate's uh, dry erase board. I hadn't met her roommate yet, and I drew my world-famous road runner. It's like one of the few things I can draw. It's not that great. But I just being goofy, right? So she left the Roadrunner on her dry erase board all that year. And then she left it on this year. And she, she transferred to another college. She's at NC State now. And she, she, she sent this picture over to Kayla and she said, I still have your dad's Roadrunner on, on my dry erase board. That's my glory. I mean, think about that. People are walking into to her room, and they're, they're saying, who drew that? Right? She's going to say, well, it's Kayla's dad. Kayla's dad drew that. Oh, wow. Well, actually, it's not all that glorious, is it? <laughs> I mean, when they look at that, they go, well, he's not much of an artist. <laughs> but God's glory is, is much greater. And it is no greater than at the cross of Christ. Martin Luther calls the cross the, the burning center of God's glory. And so when you look at that cross, you look at that gospel, that justification that God has purchased at the cross and given as a free gift, it's glorious. It's the ultimate glory of God. And it's also our ultimate hope. And as, as we see that it causes us to rejoice. It stirs the affections of our hearts to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is why we sing in church every week. We sing in church every week. I mean, I mean isn't that what you do when you feel joy? You sing? I do. My wife does. It's funny. I, she, she's not here today, so I can talk about her, but um, she, she will sing just under her breath. I, I, can, I can hear her doing, doing a chore in the house or doing something in the house, and I can hear her just singing just, just under her breath, and I know, I know she's happy. I know she's feeling joy because she's singing in response to that joy. This is what we do when we come to church. We sing. Right? We express not, not just truth claims in, the, in, the, in our minds, which are important, and the songs that we choose actually have truth claims that are, are absolutely true and centered on the gospel. That's important. But they're also a way to, to, to show our affections 
the affection of joy to God for the gospel. Now, not only are, are we rejoicing in this gospel, but we're rejoicing in suffering. Rejoicing in suffering. Verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The justified have joy in suffering. This is... A, this passage lets us know that this, this joy is something more than just circumstantial dependent, right? Like, like, like there's not, not just like, oh, it's a sunny day, I feel joy. There's something more to it. It's not just a fleeting emotion. It, it's an affection. And we're able to experience that affection in the midst of suffering. In fact, he seems to indicate that joy is increasing in suffering. Count it pure joy, my brothers, James says, as you encounter various trials. That, does that sound crazy? That, I mean, that's what it's saying. We're experiencing more joy, in, really in spite of the circumstances, an affection of, of, of joy. Now, he goes pretty deep in the process of what this might look like as we experience suffering, and, and it's kind of a cycle. It's like a positive cycle that builds on itself. And it, and it starts with hope. Like we are, we're hope-filled Christians. We're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And then we hit a patch of suffering. And so all of life includes suffering. Sickness in our bodies and our minds. Stress. A breakdown of relationships. That's just the personal stuff. Our, our, our families are, are, are busted up. Our institutions are broken. Our governments have corruption. Even the church is grossly affected by sin. Even a country like the United States of America, where many people, not all, but many people, have it pretty good in comparison to the rest of the world. And still, we suffer. Even when we have good things, we're discontent with the good things we have. That's crazy, right? But it's common, both to Christian and non-Christian. So how does a hope-filled Christian deal with suffering? And, and again, we have to fight against our, our knee-jerk reaction to, to merely just alleviate suffering at all costs, to ignore it, to escape it, to medicate it, which is what our the culture around us seems to, to, to teach us about suffering. We must arrange our lives in such a way that we can run away from Suffering at all costs, especially if you were born after 1995. <laughs> there's, there's much being written about millennials and Gen Zers and their, 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 their desire to, to get away from suffering at all costs. NYU professor Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, points out in our current uh, culture, the, the tendency to try to avoid suffering at all costs. He calls this, uh, this cultural characteristic safetyism. He says uh, safetyism, which he defines as uh, a belief system in which safety has become a sacred value. 
which means that people become unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical or moral concerns. Safety trumps everything else, no matter how unlikely or trivial the potential danger. So by avoiding both internal and external suffering, Height argues we've become weaker, not stronger. And so again, we, we have a, a lot to, to, to work against if, if we're going to do this thing of, of enduring suffering. And it is not what the culture is teaching us to do. So what does it mean to endure suffering? Well, on the surface, it sounds like we just kind of put up with the suffering. We just sort of let it squash us until it finally goes away. But this is not what Paul is saying. This word, endurance, is being translated from the Greek word hupomone. It means to bear up under the weight, much like a, a weightlifter. This guy is the world record holder of uh, the, the, the squat record, and it, he's lifting half a ton of weight, and he is not letting it squash him. He is bearing up under the weight. It's a very dynamic picture of endurance. And when we do that, it transforms our character. This is the next part of the cycle. I mean, again, you've heard it said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Even without Christ in your life, there's a sense in which this is true, that suffering can shape us in ways that are positive. Not always, but, but oftentimes. But there's something unique about a Christian's experience of suffering because a Christian is bearing up under suffering in the strength of another. And so because of this, it's more like lifting weights with someone who is spotting you. If you've ever lifted weights and, 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 and you're struggling and you're straining and you hit that point where you absolutely cannot lift any more weight and you say, take it, right? And the, and the spotter takes it and just with, with just a lift of their finger, really, all of a sudden you're able to push the weight up. But in this scenario, it's the all-powerful God <laughs> who's assisting you to bear up under the weight. So you're bearing up under the weight of a difficult child. It's requiring more power than you have in your own strength. You turn to God for help, and God assists you with His strength to bear up under the weight. Or you're bearing up under the weight of having to love a selfish friend or a selfish spouse, and you're finding it difficult to do that, and you run out of your own strength. You turn to God for assistance. He gives you strength. You bear up under the relationship. Or you need more discipline in your studies than you have the human power to do. You turn to God. You ask for help. He assists you and gives you the strength to bear up under that need for more discipline. And so instead of putting your child in front of the TV or divorcing your spouse or quitting school, you rely on the transforming grace of the gospel. And when you do that, you become more patient. You become more loving. You become more disciplined. Paul says this is the fruit of the Spirit. Not, not the fruit of Robert. You know, it's not the fruit of Joanna. It, it's the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. But, but it, it is manifest when we put faith, when we rely on the grace of God. And then God assists us to bear up 
under the weight. And when we experience that, it gives us hope. So he's back, cycled back to the beginning of, of the cycle. We're seeing God at work in the midst of our, our lives, and it causes us to look forward to, to, with even more certainty of the future. It's one thing to think rightly about the gospel. It's another thing to see the gospel working itself out in your life. It bolsters you, and your, and your, again, your, your trust in God and His grace. The first time I really was reading this passage and studying it was I was a junior in college. And I had had a friend from high school that was going to a college about 30 minutes down the, the highway. had come to visit me and my sister. And we'd had a wonderful evening together. We went out to dinner together and just laughed and had a great time. And then about one in the morning, we all kind of parted ways and she drove back to uh, her school. And what I didn't know is that when she was driving back, she was uh, hit by a drunk driver and instantly killed. So that next morning, I get a call from my mother, and she, uh, with shaky voice and uh, tears, lets me know that Tasha is dead. I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. There's just something about having seen a person that you love up close and personal just hours before, alive and well. And 12 hours later, no longer with us. I, st I stood there in the room, just totally stunned. My roommates were standing there. Uh, they knew what was happening. My mom had called them ahead of time, so they would be there to, to take care of me. And I just, I just didn't know what to do. And I went out on the, the, the porch there, the house where we were living. I sat down and uh, just started to pray. And Romans 5 came to my mind. And God assured me, even though I was in absolute pain and devastation, that I would be able to bear up under the weight. And that I would even be able to rejoice in the midst of bearing up under the weight. And he was right. <laughs> Took some time, <laughs> but he was right. We can rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's true in the big things like that, but it's also true in the little things, and this is probably where we need it the most, is, is the little things, the daily challenges of school and work and friendships and marriage and parenting, and all these are, are opportunities to hoopo money every day. And to do so in the strength of God, strength that has been given to us through the grace of the gospel. Now, this last section lets us know that our ultimate joy actually is not in what God has done, but in God himself. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice 
in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The justified have joy in God. The the way that Paul sets up that amazing statement of rejoicing in God is he reminds us who we are and who God is, right? Who we were, especially, uh, before we were saved. He says we were weak. We were unable to save ourselves, right? We were powerless. We were ungodly. We weren't just breaking rules. We were breaking relationship with the one true God. We were sinners. We weren't just slipping up every once in a while. We we, we were uh, characterized by ongoing habitual sin against God and others. And then the kicker, we were enemies. We weren't just breaking rules. We weren't just breaking relationship. We were hostiles against God and His ways. This is who we were. And so if that's who we were when God saved us, who must God be? And what Paul tells us is God must be a God of love. If He saved us when we were in that kind of predicament, where we had nothing to offer except our sin to the relationship, He must be a God of love. And He lets us know that He showed His love at the cross, Romans 5.8. Many of you know this verse, right? God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is demonstrating or showing His love for us by dying for us, who were sinners and ungodly and unrighteous and enemies. Why does this show God's love so convincingly? Because, again, obviously we did nothing to deserve His love. If we did a little something to deserve His love, the relationship would be transactional. We'd be offering a little something. And then God would see that little something and say, Oh, yeah, well, I guess you've offered that little bit, so let's make a transaction. I'll save you because you've offered a little something. No, we've offered nothing. God saved us when we had absolutely nothing to offer except our own sin. But not only that, He's letting us know that God demonstrates His love for us and that He died for us. There's a particularity about our salvation. It's it's not just kind of a general salvation and Jesus is kind of driving through the neighborhood like an ice cream truck driver. Blaring the music. Hey, anybody want to come on out? Interested? No, he's more like the Amazon driver who comes to your door. I've got a package for you, Ashley McCagney. And you say, really? Yeah, it's got your name on it. Want to sign here? He died for us. Even though we were unrighteous, ungodly, hostiles. Now, again, it's a lot easier to love humanity than it is to love individual humans. And I'm telling you this morning, God loves individual humans. He loves you. He demonstrated His love for you when He died on the cross. And He loves His church. It is a for us, right? And so He loves His church. Again, and and it's a lot harder to love individuals, particular people, than it is to say, I love all y'all in humanity. Let that stir your affection of joy 
for God. Because His affection for you has been an affection of love. And He's demonstrated that on the cross. Now, this isn't the only thing He shows at the cross. Remember back in Romans 3 when He showed His righteousness? Remember remember Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross shows God to be a righteous judge. It also shows God to be a loving justifier. It shows both. And both of those concepts are important in our declaration of the gospel. This is a good corrective. I think for for us in this current day, we tend so much to go toward love. God loves you. This is why you should become a Christian. God loves you. And that is important. But notice that Paul really hasn't talked about love until chapter 5. He mentions it briefly in the introduction, but he has not used the word love until Romans 5.5 and 5.8. That's the first time, really. And so Paul, the way he's presenting the gospel is making sure that the person understands they're under just condemnation and that they can be freed from that apart from the law through faith in Christ. It is interesting that he's talking about love in a text that is talking about the suffering of the Christian. Because this is where we question God's love, is it not? When we're suffering, we think, God, you don't love me. I'm I'm, I'm suffering. I think that's on purpose that Paul is is letting us know. No, God loves you. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know God loves you when you're experiencing emotional pain or, or relational pain or physical pain or death itself? He says, here's how you know. You look at the cross. You look at the cross. God has demonstrated His love beyond a doubt at the cross. It is your ultimate hope. It is the ultimate glory of God and the ultimate demonstration of his love. And all this reflecting on the gospel and who we were and who God is, it should result in us rejoicing not just in what God has done, but in God, in God himself. Again, look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. Yes, through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Through these truths about how the gospel has saved us who were once sinners and unrighteous and ungodly and and enemies of God. But at the end of all this, our rejoicing is in God. It it reminded me of of, uh, Christmas this past December. All our kids were back and all my kids are in their 20s. And uh, one of them was married and so... Uh, Corey's wife Rebecca was with us as well, and I was I was just experiencing this you know the twenty something Christmas thing and and thinking about back like at times when it was Christmas with with our kids that were like you know five six and eight years old, and back when they were five six eight you know you it was all about the presents it was all about the presents, 
And we'd give them the presents and be so excited. And they would say, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Daddy, but but mostly because they knew that's what they should do. And then they would just run off with the presents and play with the presents all day. But this last year, and this has certainly been going on for for quite some time, but this last year, just just giving them presents and, and them appreciating the gifts and they, you know, and they took the gifts home. None of them said, oh, I don't want your gifts. Um, they took the gifts. But I could tell that they were not there for gifts. They were there to be with me and with Melanie and with each other. And so there's something along these lines. As, as we mature as Christians, we're, we're less enamored with the gifts of God. And it's important to thank God for the things He gives us and especially to be thankful and to praise Him for the gospel that He's given us. But, but ultimately, the, the, the maturing Christian, it, it, their affections are growing to the point of having affection of joy in God Himself. And He is the ultimate source of joy, an infinite source of joy. And so it, it, it explains, I think, in part why Christ, or, uh, many people, Christians included, oftentimes are looking for joy in all the wrong places. I mean, we're built for joy, all right? We're, we're going to go hunting for joy. If we don't find it in God, we're going to f- try to find it in a beach or a romantic relationship or, or a nicer, bigger home or well-behaved children or entertainment experiences or a porn site or drugs, or who knows, right? Even religious activities. But the, the, the ultimate source of joy is, is God. He is a fountain of joy. Now, you may be hearing this and say, well, what if I don't have joy in God? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons that that, that that could be the case. One reason might be you're not a Christian, If you've grown up religious, you may have thought that your relationship with God was transactional. And you think, well, if I pray, then God will give me the stuff I want. Or if I go to church, then God will make my life easier. If I sing these songs and participate in these religious rituals, I'll get something out of it. And really, the joy that you're seeking is in the gifts that God could give you, not in God and God alone. And so if if that's... You, you, you may have never admitted that, that you were unrighteous and ungodly and hostile and in need of gospel grace. And if, that, if you haven't admitted that to God and instead have been doing this transi- transactional thing, thinking you're entitled to certain privileges because of what you've done for God, repent from that and turn to God in faith. Receive gospel grace to for- forgive you and to reconcile and to give you peace with God today. <laughs> You won't be on any kind of a, a probation where you're like, well, if you go to church three times in a row, then you'll have peace with God. No, you have it today when you receive this justification that is freely given and received by faith. But what if you are a Christian? You're like, I, I, I do understand this gospel. I, I have responded. What, what might be the problem? Why am I not experiencing the affection of joy? Lots of reasons. One might be you're not embracing the ordinary means that God has given you to transform your thinking and your feeling. I mean, worshiping today is is a means that God has given us to stir our affections of joy. I mean, how many of us walked into this room not feeling very joy-filled about the gospel and about God, and yet when we started singing those songs, it was stirring our affections? 
And yes, it was informing our minds with theological uh, lyrics, but it was also stirring our affection. It's good to gather and worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is part of the, one of the means that God has given us to stir us and stir our joy-filled affections. This sermon, hopefully, is not just informing your mind, but it's giving heat to the heart. It's stirring your affection of joy in God. Gathering in more intimate settings with uh, other believers. It stirs us. It stirs our affections. Um, personal reading of the Bible, good books. It, it stirs our affections. Listening to sermons and, and, and lectures on gospel truth. If you're wondering, why, why don't I feel the affection of joy for God and His gospel, yet you're filling your mind with things other than gospel truth? I, I mean, of course you're not going to have affection for God. And the means of just confession. Coming to God and, and, and saying, I confess to you, I do not have an affection for joy for you, God. Help me, God. Forgive me, God. I know it is right to have the affection of joy toward you and your gospel. Other Christians may lack joy because of chronic disobedience. You may be saying to yourself, well, I, I, I'm, I'm dating a non-Christian and the relationship isn't going that well and I'm suffering in the midst of that chronic disobedience and God won't give me joy. He's not going to give you joy <laughs> in the midst of that. He's actually going to withhold it. <laughs> as a way to, to graciously, mercifully uh, discipline you and to call you back to obedience to Him. You may be saying to yourself, I'm looking at porn every day and, and, and I'm not, I just don't have joy. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're not going to have joy. God, God's not interested in, in pouring out joy, the capacity for joy, when we are chronically disobedient. Or I could just be, I'm just totally focused on myself or on my family. I have no interest in fellowshipping with other believers. I have no interest in the mission that God has placed me on to make disciples. And, and, and you're like, why won't God give me joy as I live my self-centered life? He's not going to give you joy in the midst of that kind of chronic disobedience. He's actually going to withhold it as, as a means of discipline, as, as a means of, of calling you back to a wholehearted relationship with him. And again, we're not talking about just the daily bearing up under uh, sin and, and struggling with those things. Absolutely, he's going to give you joy in the midst of, of, of genuine confession and repentance as you're transformed from uh, one degree of glory to another. But know that part of bearing up under the weight is continuing to obey even in the midst of suffering. That, that's part of the bearing up. And that's part of what God is eager to assist us with, is to remain faithful, to, to take up the cross daily and follow Him. We're bearing that up in His strength, and He is more than happy to assist us. And then thirdly, our lack of joy might be something else. It might be something else. It might be we're overtired. It might be we're overstressed. It might be we're, we're, we have unhealthy eating habits. It might be that we're watching too much screen time. It could be we're grieving a loss of some sort. It could be depression. Our physical state is inextricably linked with our spiritual and emotional life. 
And so we, we have to consider those things as well that may be affecting. I mean, even when you're super tired, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm going to have a quiet time, and you're absolutely exhausted, and you read your little psalm for the day, how much joy you're feeling really in that moment. You just can't. You're capable of it because you're so tired. And so again, it could be some of these kind of physiological, mental kinds of things that are uh, causing this lack of joy. The important thing I want you to take away from this is do not accept joyless Christian living. (laughs) Don't accept it. That is not what this scripture is telling us to do. This scripture is telling us that, that we are to be rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, rejoicing in suffering, rejoicing in God, regardless of circumstances. This is, this is what we're being commanded to do. And so let, let's depend on the gospel grace, not just to save us, but to transform us, and not just to transform what we think and what we do, but what we feel. And let's ask the Lord if, if, if we're not feeling those affections, right? And I myself, as I prepared for this this week, just confessing to the Lord. Lord, I, I don't have the kind of affection of joy in you as, as I should. God, help me. Forgive me. So easy for, for me to turn my Christianity into a chore or into my job. And I, I know that, that something's off when, I, when I'm having a day off and I'm having a day off from God. I'm not thinking about Him I'm not having an affection of joy for him and his gospel. And it's, I know it's time to confess and time to ask him to, to, to put those affections in my heart. Let's pray. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the glory of God. May that be true in our hearts this morning. And we confess to you, oftentimes our affections are not as they should be. And yet we long to have this affection of joy. We're proving it by all the lesser things that we look for joy in. But God, help us today to find this infinite source of joy in the gospel, the God of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.